you haven't yet, go subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at livingthedream506. But most importantly, keep listening and let me know what you think. This episode of Living the Dream is brought to you by AMW Group. AMW has the right tools to help you build your music career one step at a time. Get your song to the audience it deserves with AMW's Spotify playlist promotion service and work with AMW's experts to get your music heard. Check out their services by visiting bit.ly slash livingthedream10 and get a special 10% discount to their music promotion services by using coupon code AMW10. My guest today is the keyboard player for the band The New Deal, along with countless side projects, including the band Omega Moose. He's also a television composer and a very busy man. It was a lot of fun talking to this guy, and if you get a chance to see these guys live, do it. We talked for quite a while, so let's get into it. Please give it up for Jamie Shields. I'm here with Jamie Shields, a uh, television composer and keyboard player for The New Deal. Thanks for doing this, man, by the way. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Just finished uh, another jam with Dan and Davide and getting ready to head out on the road. Yeah, you got a couple dates coming up in New York. Yeah, I got uh, Saratoga Springs and I think it's Albany. And that's this weekend, the 4th and 5th. Then we really get going at the end of October, and we're basically on the road for most of November. Nice. Any uh, any secrets you want to share about the tour coming up? Well, it's our first real tour with Davide. That may not be a secret. Um, no, yeah, the new drummer, right? Yeah, new drummer, um, who actually was supposed to be our original, original drummer back w- before Darren. Dan, the bass player, and I had jammed with Davide, just the friendly thing. We had known each other. We were friends. We played together. We were like, wow, this sounds pretty cool. We should try and start something, the three of us. Davide was too busy at the time and wasn't able to commit to the band. And so we got an equally good drummer in Darren Shearer, which we all know about. Uh, But Davide was, you know, free. A year and a half ago, we ran into him somewhere. He's a real busy drummer, a session guy, and had a lot of dates and a lot of gigs. But we got together again to just jam. And it was pretty awesome. And it had a pretty good feeling about it. So what we ended up doing was we ended up jamming twice a week for about a year and a half just to play with each other and just to, you know, develop a a musical relationship. Because we had played with Davide in the past, just, you know, various things, but never in the sort of close, intense dynamic that you have in the New Deal where we're making up so much of what we do and there's a lot of signals and cues and you know, you got to, everybody has to sort of lead the band, right? Like you can't just have one guy leading. 
you know, yeah, everybody sure. has to has to lead, and then every you have to be ready to follow it <laughs> a nanosecond later. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Rare commodity in drummerland. Most drummers are taught from the very beginning: just follow, follow the bass player, or follow the guitar, or follow the song, or whatever. And mm-hmm. in the new deal, it's the opposite: it's don't follow anything. Uh, <laughs> follow, follow your heart, really. Follow. Yeah. What's mind and what you want to do and we're all going to do the same right we're going to follow so oh, that sounds cool we're going to go with that and so that takes a long time to develop that sort of close musical relationship but it developed and you know we went out and played four shows in june just to see how things were going and i mean it was crazy it was amazing the response was incredible people were very very happy to see us back doing what we do and it was very much a throwback to sort of the earlier days of the new deal where we kind of just got on stage and let it all hang out you know and we didn't really worry about anything but what we were doing in that exact moment so the secret is that <laughs> the new deals doing what they love to do and what they do best which is you know stepping on stage and improvising a lot of music and various you know dance and various different styles basically whatever we're feeling at that moment we try and synthesize into a musical you know, situation which the audience usually resonates with and, and we resonate with them and the feedback is mutual. And that's kind of what makes a New Deal show special, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, and that's how it started, right? With the, the live album that was just basically your first show recorded and you released it? Yeah, we didn't even plan on releasing it. We planned on listening to it. And right. Because it was sort of, it was a very much a new thing for us way back when. You know, and that can tie into what we're like, that we just put an album out a couple of days ago called Phoenix, which is sort of the same thing, which was these, we have dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of us jamming in dance studio, which is right. what we were doing with Dabide for a year and a half. And we were never thinking about releasing it. We were thinking about listening to it and seeing how everything sounded. And the same reaction happened with this stuff now that it did back then for our first album, which was called This Is Live which was when we listened back to that first show we ever did, which was, I think, in front of six people, which is six more than <laughs> the stuff we're doing at, well, on the Phoenix album is in front of nobody. <laughs> we were like, wow, this is unreal. Like, this is, if I feel this way about this, you know, and we can get a half a percent of the music listening population to feel the same way, um, which isn't a hard feat, then we got something good going on because it felt really special to me. And the same sort of thing happened now with all the stuff here. We weren't going to release, you know, maybe we will put some up on social media just for people to hear. But we, I go, I'm generally the band's archivist. I listen to all the stuff we do and I sort of catalog most of this stuff that we've done. Um, Mm. And I listen to all this and it's like, we should be releasing this. These should be albums because they're unbelievably created. Uh, It's just, it was, it's every time it's an experience that, you never think you can replicate, and then you go and replicate it two days later with something completely different, musically speaking, but the feeling is the same. So those these releases that we're planning on doing, and this is the first time in the New Deal history where we can say we have like seven albums ready to go. <laughs> uh, it's amazing, you know? It's like we don't even have to, and we keep on recording our jams, and we're going to have more and more and more. It's like the faucet has turned on, and we have no intention of turning it off at this moment. I mean, if it's if all it costs is some type of media drive to record it and capture it, I mean, MSG, our front of house sound man, he mixes these jams live as we're playing them as if it's a concert, right? So we right. don't go back to it to mix it later. It goes straight to the finished product. Well, almost the finished product, but very mm. close to the finished product. And that's it. The amount of time it took to record is the amount of time that it took for us to play. And that's it. 
and we're done. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, nice. So you said you have like seven ready to go right now. So well, like, yeah, I'd say it depends what you consider an album, but you know, we have. I mean, like I said, we have dozens and dozens of hours of jams, and I've been editing them only to shorten them up. Like mm-hmm. for no other reason, there's no overdubs on any of these, you know, it's pure new deal. And the only editing I'm doing is to just sort of tighten it up time-wise, right? So that you yeah. can have these like, you can have these like 20 minute or 25 minute sort of suites, musical suites, and you can put two, you know, two sort of big ones and one sort of smaller one on there. So in order to do that, we've just, I've sort of been shortening them up a little bit, but that's the only stuff I've been doing. So from the dozens and dozens and dozens of hours, we probably have ended up with 10 solid jam uh since all hours of releases of jams to release and i mean each time we play well, i'm adding more to the pile because we can we always can get at least a good half an hour out of the stuff that we do it's just something's always good <laughs> when we're right. playing uh so it could be more you know but the top of the top stuff that i have is at least you know, quality seven to ten hours which is seven releases at this moment perfect yeah so is that is that the writing process for the new deal like is there a writing process or is it basically let's just jam and follow our hearts like you said and then well the very first concert which became like you like we talked about our very first record was the result of us recording the show and listening to it and then releasing it that's how we got a lot of our songs we would listen to these shows go back and go that's a cool bit let's Mm -hmm. let's take that and play it again tonight and see what we can develop from it, right? right? So a lot of the tunes that we do, they're written on stage. Right. As long as we've recorded it, we can go back and listen to it, and generally speaking, we something can coalesce, you know, into an actual piece. But, you know, our, our songs, quote-unquote songs, they're a, it's, it's a very much a jazz sort of ethos, which is that there's a head, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a musical head, a, a melody with some chord progressions, and, and the song, I mean, we're writing songs on stage, so write these things and then there's a giant exploration in the middle and then sometimes we go back and sometimes we don't right so right. This, the pieces are, are short in and of themselves they can be two minutes long but then the sort of improvisation part of it could be 40 minutes so that of course changes every night but as far as writing goes i mean i always describe what we're doing as writing songs on stage that's kind of what we do you know and most of our albums including the one before this called mercury switch was based on us taking bits from our live concerts and then trying to you know play them and write them in the studio there was never any there there aren't any boundaries with the new deal in terms of how do you want to approach this you know we've released albums where they are completely just live performances uh there are we've released albums where the sort of idea was based in a live performance and then we played it in the studio and then you can take an album like gone 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 where we wrote everything in the studio dan and i wrote most of that record and we wrote it together in the studio because we had our new deal had our own studio at the time Mm -hmm. uh and so we were in it 15 hours a day um just trying out stuff and writing music and seeing how it would go and then you know darren would come in and we would either Dan and I would have either put everything down and Darren would sort of play over it or we'd play it all together or there'd be a combination of us on Gone, Gone, Gone as well. I mean, if you take the song Gone, 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 the first two minutes of it is pre-written with Dan and me in the studio, but then the middle section, we edited it in from a jam that we were doing in the same studio. So <laughs> it's, you know, a combo of everything. But generally speaking, we take our ideas from what we play about.
you'll ever go back to the gone 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 formula and maybe try to write in studio yeah you never say never but you know it's we kind of you know we kind of ride the wave whatever wave is you know rideable at the moment and right now we're really getting off on the uh, musical energy that the three of us are combining to create the music that is currently happening in our lives and so we want to we want to take that as far as it can go because a lot of the stuff that we do you know, a lot of people, myself included, are sort of restricted and restrained when you're sort of sitting there writing in the studio. Let's try this. Let's try that. But, you know, we're, we're so open when we play live, very much a let it all hang out atmosphere. At least we try to uh, you know, foster that approach right. that we leave it so open that things we would never think of doing when you're sitting and writing in studio things that you never think of doing, all of a sudden you're doing them because you're not thinking about it, right? You know, we've always said in, for the New Deal, we've always said, you know, we never rehearse. We're, because we're jamming, like we're performing. Right. You know, like with Davide, Davide had to learn a bunch of New Deal songs. I mean, we've pulled out a lot of old New Deal songs that we haven't played in a long time that we wanted to, but, you know, we said, we figured since we're down there learning some of these tracks or Davide is, we might as well all be learning some of our older stuff. So we pulled out some stuff that we haven't played in a long time, which is really exciting because mm-hmm. Davide adds a very cool, interesting rhythmic twist to what's happening and makes it interesting again for us. There's a lot of other songs that we'll end up learning at some point. But, you know, we don't, with the exception of learning those songs with Davide, we don't really rehearse per se. We perform <laughs> in front of nobody. We set the stuff up and we set it up in the studio and we mix it on the fly and we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been, you know, it's what we like to do. It's what we're comfortable doing. And we do, if dare I say, we do it well. We can, uh, it's like, we're, that's how we write. We write all together in the room playing at the same time. Will we right. go back to do it like the way Gong Gong? Well, I'll never say never, uh, but it's not at the top of the list right now because we're trying to ride <laughs> our strengths. We're trying to play to our strengths. And right now our strength has very much been the, the sort of unified musical intensity that happens when the three of us start improvising together or start writing together in the moment. Right. For sure. Yeah. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, I mentioned you do like television compositions. Mm -hmm. So, so with television, like what's the process like there and like how much creative freedom do you have when you're composing for TV shows? That's, that's an interesting uh, question. I've actually written about that. I don't remember if it was for keyboard magazine or where it was, but I've written about how, you know, it is considered a very limiting creative experience, oftentimes mm-hmm. writing for TV or film. But for me, you know, you receive a mandate and you are informed in which direction they'd like you to go and everything else. But once you've been given that direction, I find that there's as much improvisation in the moment improvisation there can mm-hmm. be 
at least off the top when you're starting. Because what I do, if I'm writing a specific scene, you know, I, I let the scene roll and I press record and I just start improvising or playing over what I'm feeling when I'm watching the scene. Right. And some of it has to do with sound. Some of it has to do with the note I'm playing. Some of it has to do with rhythm. But almost always, I'm reacting to what I'm seeing, hearing, or feeling at that moment, which isn't much different than what I do in the New Deal. Mm-hmm. You know, if I lead uh, the next minute, I follow like we talked about, and the following part of it is very much reacting to what you're hearing around you in that moment. Same thing when I'm doing this for TV. If I'm watching something on a screen, my mandate, at least my personal creative mandate, is to not think about it, uh, same mandate as in the New Deal, and to try and feel it by just playing whatever. You know, digital tape is cheap. It's, it's right. a hard drive space. I don't need to worry about it. I can save that bit if I like it and see if it works somewhere else, or I can delete it, or I can you know keep part of it. Whatever works in that moment, I'll keep. And if it doesn't, I just start again. And it's the same thing we do in the New Deal, which is, and I just, we were having this conversation today, actually, with Davide. He was asking a question about a certain part in a certain song. And I said, well, you know, we do it. Sometimes we do it that way. And sometimes we don't. And sometimes we mess it up. And sometimes we don't. Uh, so however you want to do, it's fine by us. You know, you feel it. <laughs> however you feel it, just do it. And don't worry about it because the next day there's going to be another gig and you can play it again. Right. You know, there'll be a gig down the, down the next week. You can try it again a different way. There's never anything hard and fast in how we play it. However you want to change things, go ahead because this is you. We're, you're here because we like playing with you. So whatever you want to add. So, you know, with TV, it's kind of the same thing, which is I have to put my personal stamp on it. There are certain scenes where they're like, just give me a drone. <laughs> okay, well, I'll just give you a pad or a drone. Fine, no problem. But they're, I mean, they hired me for a reason. They hired me because they like the work I do. And if right. the work I've done in the past is based in that sort of mode of operation, which is to let it all hang out the best I can within the parameters I've been given, then I continue to work that way. I try to think the least amount possible because I find that it hinders my ability to create at maximum flow. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Try to enter that flow state and just let it kind of let it all hang out. Exactly. That's what it is that we try to do at all times. If I, if I'm thinking on stage and there, you know, I was just writing about this recently discussing the Phoenix album that we're, that we've put out playing with Davide. I don't, have to think because it's also about trust right you have to trust yourself but you have to trust everybody else playing with you Mm -hmm. on stage so that if they come up with an idea and this takes a lot it took a long time for me to wrap my head around which was just because you have an idea and they have an idea doesn't mean my idea is any better right Mm -hmm. i used to try and force my idea across musical idea across in the moment and it was like yeah we'll get to yours later no I, the the more that I w- allowed myself to open up and allow those mu- other musical ideas to come in and embrace them and work with them, the sooner my music got better. You know, I, mm-hmm. If I'm fighting it and I'm thinking about it and I'm not allowing myself to embrace the idea that someone else has, then I am doing the music a disservice and I am doing the band a disservice because I am not completely open to... Uh, allowing the best possible music to occur. So when did 
when did this all start for you? When did you start playing piano and like, like is your family musical or? I am, I am the youngest of four kids okay. and I have, you know, I, I come from a big family. I got like, uh, you know, 12, 15 other cousins. I am the only musical person in my <laughs> entire extended family. And I'm talking like 40 people that are walking this earth right now between nieces and nephews and cousins and this and that and brothers and right. sisters, and parents and grandparents and everything else. I am the only musical person. So and how did I that happen? I do not know, but I will tell you this. I started, I was forced to take piano lessons starting at age five. Mm-hmm. And I took them all the way until I was 13, at which point my piano teacher told my parents that I couldn't come back because (laughs) I wasn't learning what she was trying to teach me. I wouldn't go and practice the music. And then she would play it for me and I'd go, oh, so it goes like this because my ear would pick it out. And right. then I would be able to just play it right then and there. And she basically said, well, I'm not teaching him anything because he doesn't want to learn it. Uh, and he picks it out from his ear. So there's no point in you spending X amount of dollars every Monday at 4.30 uh, to bring this kid in here because you're just throwing your money away. I can't teach him anything because he's not interested in learning. The minute that I got, got kicked out of piano lessons was the minute that I started enjoying playing piano. <laughs> it's true I, I moved into ninth grade the next year and there's a bunch of music programs there and bands and everything else in high school and I took to that like you know a fish to water that was when I started to enjoy playing piano and that's when I actually started learning music I was right. taking arrangement stuff arranging stuff in, in school I was taking compositional stuff in school I was trying to sop up and absorb any musical knowledge that my music teachers in high school could give me uh it became my obsession at that point which is also where i met dan the bass player in the new deal we've been in band since since we were 14 uh it's he's been you know i've played in i don't know how many bands with that guy but it's got to be decades that we've been musical partners and it was at that point where i started to really become a musician and before that it was just, it was just another adult telling me what, what to do, right? Which is what, yeah. you know, what happens when you're a kid. You got a bunch of adults telling you what to do. It didn't resonate as music with me. I didn't have that relationship with it, right? It became something I just like homework that I had to do. And the minute I didn't have to do it anymore, it became something I wanted to do. So from that age on, you, do you think that that's when you knew you really wanted to kind of play oh, music yeah. for a living? Hundred percent. I knew I was going to be a professional musician in ninth grade. Hundred <laughs> percent. Awesome. I got. I got. You know. I. I get told a lot that you know, I'm very lucky because I knew what I wanted to do from an early age. But that's all I know. I don't right. know from anything else. I don't know about not knowing what I was going to do and what I was going to be. I, I've held many menial jobs in my life. You know. I've been not menial. I take that back. Uh, shift work. I've done a lot of bus busing and a lot of waitering. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the odd job here and there for various things, but the only steady job that I've ever had is as a musician. I've been doing it since I was 18 years old. I went to college and I got a degree, but I was on the road for 50% of my time in college. I was never, you know, I had to change my schedule for essays and not exams. I couldn't do that, but for tests and essays, I would either hand them in early or I would ask for a day extension because I was gone from Thursday afternoon until Sunday night. 
every yeah. almost every weekend. So I was I was in school for four four days of the week uh, and gigging during the week. It was just uh, how my life. It's just what became my life in an early age. It's what I wanted to do, and so I did it. And I managed to graduate with an honors degree in history, which is not particularly <laughs> served me particularly well. Uh, but that doesn't that doesn't matter, you know. I've had my I've been working my job since I was eighteen years old, and logged thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of hours doing it, and you know, loving it every minute of the day. If I didn't love it, and I said this before, if I didn't love it, I'd go become an accountant or something. Because I sure ain't making the money. I mean, you make right. good enough money, but this isn't about money. If this was about money, I would have gone to medical school or done something else where I could make a lot of money. Mm, this, of course. This, this is not it, you know, and I never, ever thought about abandoning it because the two hours that you spend on stage performing generally outweigh the other 22 hours of the day. And my explanation for a lot of the touring I did was as long as the two hours outweigh the other 22 hours, then you're good. And then right. you'll stop touring when the two hours stopped outweighing the other 22 hours. Yeah, when for it sure. Became, when it became not as invigorating on stage, you can spot those moments in the history of the New Deal. We've taken you know, a year off in 2005, and we took the past two and a half years off when, with, after we finished with Joel. Who's a great guy and a very good drummer, but it just didn't work in the New Deal. Like I still see him, I talk to him, we're friends, but it just wasn't that fit. And it's a very tough fit. It's very tough to create this relationship as a drummer in this band. There's a lot of stuff that you have to feel that you can't explain. Not everybody has it. Okay, right. so you can you can map where the two hours on stage were not outweighing the the rest of the day and that was when we took a year break in 2005 but we stopped playing with darren in 2012 and then we stopped playing with joel in 2016 just you know did we know did we know we were going to come back with dabbing no uh and we wouldn't have had we not had i not had this feeling like it it requires a fair bit of work cataloging and doing all the stuff that we do with the new deal not knowing if we were going to play anymore i'm talking about the first year that we played with david we just we devoted a lot of time to just getting to know each other musically with no end game of okay then we're going to go on the road because now the, the gigs that we're choosing to play we're choosing to play incredibly small places right and the reason that we're doing that is because we don't want this to feel we want this to be a natural extension of playing in dance studio Mm. the best way to do that is to keep your gig small for sure yeah and, and so we don't i don't want to have to go in there worrying about anything but and, and knowing full well what you're getting into when you're playing super small places well maybe the sound isn't so good on stage okay i'll make it work i've played sports <laughs> maybe you don't have all the stuff backstage that you're supposed to have at your regular shows i'll make it work we'll, we'll live right? right it's about immersing yourself in uh in your sort of musical positioning on stage physically and you know emotionally mentally but also immersing yourself with the people around and playing these gigs that are not merely people standing in front of you either dancing or really getting off on what you're playing but people standing basically on top of you next to you right that's a mm. that's a an emotional relationship that really helps to drive our music. And that is the band audience emotional relationship. That stuff there, because the band feeds off the energy the audience is giving. Now, lots of bands do that. And lots of bands say that. And it's very, I'm sure that they're not lying. 
but we stand on that statement because it affects the music we're creating in the moment on stage for that. That's what makes it interesting. So that's what we wanted to start with when we were playing a bunch of these shows are like no bigger than somebody's living room, but it doesn't matter because this is not, this is not the go out and get rich tour. This is not what this is. This is the go out and get enriched musically, emotionally, spiritually enriched and remind all of us in the new deal and the people that come out to see us why we do what we do and why we're special at what we do. Yeah. I remember like, when I first started listening to you, it was right after this is live came out. So then yeah. like, just, I was, I was just getting out of high school when I was trying to f- see you guys for the first time. I went to a festival called shoreline and PEI to see you guys. And you guys cool. got canceled. You guys got canceled because of a hurricane. So the whole day got canceled and the whole festival got Brutal. canceled. So Brutal. then in, uh, after that, like three years later, you guys played in Anaganish, Nova Scotia at Evolve music festival. I remember I was, that. Yeah, so that was the first time I saw you guys, and it just blew our whole friend group mind. Like, yeah. we've been listening to you guys for 10 years at that point. Yeah. And it was just amazing, right? So, I mean. And, and what's cool about it is we never get tired. And like I said, the two hours outweigh the 22 hours. And when they don't, it's not because I'm tired of playing the same music. We're never playing the same music, right? Maybe we're going to play the same two minutes of a song a couple mm-hmm. nights in a row but then after that it goes off somewhere else and it, you know we don't know it doesn't matter it's very exactly open. so the cool thing is that 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 show in Antigonish would have been completely different than the show we played the night before and the show that we were going to play the next night and that's exactly. what enables me to continue to play in the new deal style because the new deal style is very much a non-style we have a sound yes there are certain sounds that i use and there are certain beats and certain shots and hits that we play and everything. But generally speaking, and I say this to anybody who will listen, if you go back, if anybody complains that we play the same show, for example, mm-hmm. I, I, I suggest you line up three, four, five random shows. Just pick them. Start them all at the same time and see if they sound the same. Right. See if they're going to line up and you're going to hear the same show you heard the night before. Right. And you won't because it's just, we're just making, making it up on stage. Right. You go along. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you also play in the band, uh, Omega Moose with Brendan <laughs> Bayless, Ryan Stasek, Humphreys McGee. Um, yep. so I, I got a few fan questions coming up later, but just at, right now, Dan Herco is wondering like how and when was that collaboration conceived? That collaboration was conceived probably in 2007. Dan, the bass player in the New Deal, had for a long time a band called Dragonette. And they were a very popular band. They had a bunch of hits and stuff. And he was very, very busy with that band. That left Darren and myself wondering what we were going to do. Right. So Darren got in touch with Ryan Stasek from Humphreys McGee. And you know, Ryan, we had spoken with in the past. He was a fan. You want to play together. We'll go you know, play some gigs or just do something. Ryan said, yeah, listen, why don't I bring in my buddy, Brandon Bayless? And we'd known, we'd known the Humphreys guys already for a very long time. They were also very early fans of the New Deal. They have been appreciating what we're doing for a very long time. Right. Um, and he said, you know, Brandon would be good for this too. So we started to play. We went and played some gigs in Chicago in 2007, I'd say, 2006 maybe. And it was so much fun like it was just fun hanging with those guys it was a very very easy thing to do at that point 
we said any free time that we can play shows, let's do it. Let's, and so we've, since then, we took a little break for a couple of years there. I mean, those guys got really busy and they didn't want to do side projects when they were off the road because they were on the road way too much. Yeah. They're on the road a lot less now. Uh, but we, it was always a blast to play these shows because it was just so much fun. It's because we're good friends. You know, we've been good friends now for a long time. I, Brandon Bayless, I would consider one of my closest friends and I'm sure he would consider me to be one of his. Right. And when we do gigs now, if we're not meeting up at a festival or something, then I'll come. If we do them in Chicago or if we've done, I think we did a couple more in Toronto. If we didn't do them in Toronto, we started in Toronto to go play in upstate New York or something. Right. But then we'll, I'll stay at his house. And we'll go catch a Cubs game or we'll just hang out and I'll hang out with his kids or he's hung out with my kids. And it's just like a friendship thing, right? Yeah. It's a nice relaxing environment to play in. And it's the reason that we put it together is because we like to spend time with each other and we happen to get paid to spend time with each other. <laughs> we have to Perfect. put on a good show as well, right? I mean, we're not <laughs> stealing anybody's money. We really enjoy being on stage and playing these songs and jamming on it. And everybody loves playing with everybody else on that stage. So nobody's doing this just for money. But we do it as a hang and as a fun time. And that reflects off the stage too. People are like, these guys are having a blast playing these songs yeah. and making them their own. So it's been going on, I'd say 12, 13 years or something. I mean, we've probably played 50 shows. I don't know, something in that time. Not a lot, uh, but enough that it's, you know, we want to keep doing it because it's just so much fun hanging with those guys. I remember we did a tour, just did a week or something, and it was the Omega Moose, and I want to say Conspirator with Mark and Aaron. I don't remember if it was Conspirator or another one. I mean, Mark's another guy. Mark Brownstein is another dude that I've played I think he and I laugh. I think we've got 12 side projects that we've done over the years. I mean, I can name probably eight right off the top of my head right now. And that gig is all about hang. As, and that's right. the, it's, it's actually Aaron Magner's line, which is it's all about the hang. That was his right. line about why we do these gigs together. Because we just want to hang out with each other. We enjoy each other's company. We enjoy going out for meals. We enjoy drinking with each other. We enjoy playing music with each other. And if we can do it in an official capacity where we play a gig, all the better. Yeah. So with the hang, and I, there's, we've seen a bit of a resurgence with Omega Moose, some dates announced right oh, yeah. now and stuff. Have you guys ever considered writing originals together? Uh, I think this we consider. Yeah, there's just side sidebar. There are we're going to be. Uh, I can think of at least four or five more. Omega Moose shows that are going to be announced very soon. Um, we got two coming up in Chicago, which is crazy that we're playing the Vic Theater, but we can because it's the moves. And the, the, the motto of the Omega Moose is besides the hang is it's the moves, which means whatever <laughs> goes, goes. Like, don't worry right. about it. It's the moves. And it's true. It's like, okay, well, that's cool. We're going to be able to sell enough tickets for that. There you go. But we got like four or five other shows, which will be the most amount of Omega Moose shows we've played in a six-month period, I think, ever. And which is very cool because there'll be some things that we're announcing shortly with the new deal that will allow us to play more Omega Moose shows together. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Have we ever considered writing originals? Not really, because the point of the band is to get away from our quote-unquote day jobs, right? right? Which is your main band. And in your main band, you have a lot of pressure to write songs. 
And I got a lot of pressure to write songs in the moment on stage. Brendan's got a lot of pressure to write songs in his studio and in his practice room to bring them to his band to perform mm -hmm. on stage. So we wanted to create an atmosphere, and that's what helps keep it so light. We wanted to create an atmosphere where there were no expectations for that, right? That we could right. just sit down and have a laugh and play good music and then jam on stage. And, you know, we do a little bit of writing in our improv on stage. But as far as writing originals go, we're going to leave those, I think, to our day jobs. have a pretty good relationship i remember back in uh was, i think it was 2011 at mountain jam um the uh -huh. new, deal, new deal umphreys mcgee you guys were both playing at the same time which was which pissed a lot of people off yep playing separate stages at the same time and mid-show you guys traded bass players so mm -hmm. like during the show dan came on stage and took the bass out of ryan's hands and then ryan yep. left and then joined you guys at your stage yep. i thought that was such a cool idea like just yep we've well we've done that we've played i mean we'll do that we don't do that too often but, but we will do it with the people that we know and trust musically right a very tough right. gig in the new deal very tough gig if you don't know what's happening mm -hmm. you can you can be left on the side of the road very quickly if if you don't you know if you're not uh, if you're not a follower of what we do same enough right you got, they got a lot of signals and they got a lot of stuff going on and if you don't know what's happening you can wave bye-bye because they're going to leave you in the dust. Absolutely. And so yeah. we've done that with those guys because we are just, you know, they trust us musically and we trust them musically. We, we've done, I remember a long time ago, we had played a bunch of shows with the Biscuits where one by one we would trade instruments. I, I don't remember, who, I, I would imagine that we were on first. And then one by one, we would, one guy would come on and switch or we were all together. We all, they right. all came on and we all played together for a while. And then one by one, we would leave or they would leave. I don't remember who, who was first. Nice. Uh, and that same sort of thing, which is you just sort of play together because you have to trust it and it's easy. And by easy, I mean it's not – you don't have to think too hard about it, right? You can just yeah, exactly. sort of go and do it. And, and so with Umphreys, we could do that at any point in time. I mean I just went up and played with them last week when the Omega Moves were playing at Resonance. And I went up and I played Living in Stereo with them. Uh, and, cars cover? Yeah, the Cars cover in honor Beautiful. of Michael Kasich. Right. And, I, you know, they were practicing it in their trailer beforehand. And I came over and it was like, yeah, Joel's like, you got it. I'm like, yeah, I got it. We didn't even have to, like, discuss it. We knew how it was going to go. And so we all took our own parts and we figured it out. And it sounded great. And that sort of musical trust just makes it a lot easier on stage, you know. Yeah, for sure. And with, uh, I've heard a few rumors that maybe you guys will be touring or playing a couple of shows together in 2020. So well, I won't, I won't deny that. I won't confirm it, but I won't deny it either. Perfect. I hope we can is, see some cool collabs. Yeah. I would imagine there'll be some collabs going on. I mean, those, guys, if it happens, 
yeah, if if it, I can't say yes and I can't <laughs> say no. Perfect. It's not for me to say yes or no. I can leave it at that. But I will say that I there's no band. I don't think there's there's no band that I respect more and everybody in the New Deal respects more than Umphreys McGee. Those guys are the hardest working band in showbiz. Those guys have been on the road grinding forever. Right. And it is that and besides the fact that they're all like the nicest guys in the world. That's you know, which is all rarity in music in general. Every single guy in that band is just great. I've stayed at majority of their houses, and they've stayed at mine, and we've hung out way into the morning time. There, I've never had a problem ever. They've never had a problem with me. But it is, I've I've said to them, they're like, you know, you think about all those midwestern bands from the seventies and eighties, or if you think about like you know bands from Chicago or whatever, like Cheap Trick or or Chicago, or like Ario Speedwagon, or any of those like rock bands, those guys were known for being road dogs. They mm-hmm. would be this, that Midwestern work ethic. Just get it and go, and do your best, and keep on doing your best, and just get out there and go, go, go. That is what those guys did forever, and they are reaping the rewards now, and it is purely a result of hard work. They're the hardest working band I've ever been a, a part of or known, for sure. Right. Yeah. So with talking about those like sit-ins and little experiences you've had with them, one last question before fan questions. Um, sure. What What would you say is maybe your most memorable experience playing music? My most memorable experience playing music. Tough question. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, there have been a lot of great shows in my life, you know, Red Rocks and uh, Coachella um those you know doing the moby gigs touring with herbie hancock like all that stuff was very important in my musical life but my most memorable gig and it's funny because it is really far back is the first new deal and i remember a lot of it the first new deal gig that gig that became this is live i remember so much of playing that show and i remember listening to it immediately after when we loaded all the gear into my car mm-hmm. dan and i put the cassette in it was a cassette we recorded it on cassette that tells you how little expectation <laughs> we had of releasing it right? right we just recorded it to hear how it would sound we found a, a little store selling the cassettes two down from where we were playing and so we bought one after dinner and we put the cassette into my car and we were going to listen to five minutes of it and we ended up listening to the whole show parked in front of the venue. It was probably <laughs> 2.30 in the morning at that point. But we couldn't stop listening to it because it was, it was light. I don't want to, I don't say this lightly, but it was life-changing in a musical sense. It was like, wow, this can actually be done. Right. We can actually make music up on the spot and have some type of depth that has depth to it. And that can resonate with the listener like it's resonating with me right now when I'm listening to it because I don't, I'm rarely, generally speaking, I listen to my performances. I'm not always impressed, right? Like lots of musicians, oh, I missed a note or whatever. But this wasn't (laughs) about specific individual performances. This was about a group creation. And that had such an effect on me as what well, created the new deal, but besides, and we didn't have a name at that time either. We were just going to jam mm-hmm. that besides setting the rest of my musical life, setting the direction for the rest of my musical life. It also lit a fire in me 
teaching me that I can do this as a musician. I can create music on stage that is not just atonal or scary because a lot of people think of improvisation as being something that's a scary thing, but it doesn't have to be. It can be very inclusive and it can be very embracing if you allow it to be. And if everybody's in on it and everybody in the new deal is definitely in on it, then you can create beautiful music. And it was that gig that taught me that. And I actually remember a very large majority of that gig. I cannot remember a large majority of the gigs I played a month ago, but I can remember a large majority of that one. You know, right. 20 years ago. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so you mentioned at the time, this will be the, this is one of the first fan questions we had. Sure. So it was a great segue. You mentioned you didn't have a name at the time. So where yeah. did the name, the new deal come from? The name, the new deal came from Darren working in a skateboard shop and looking up on the wall and seeing the new deal skateboards or the new deal trucks or whatever. I don't remember what the new deal made, but the new deal made something about skateboards and he saw it and suggested it. And that was it. Perfect. <laughs> That's how, and, and because we didn't like, you know, I said, Oh yes, this is something that lit a fire and showed me my musical direction. That's all very true. But three days after the release of that record, we weren't thinking to ourselves, okay, we're going we're gonna to now release this record and we're going to have 40-minute improvisational jams and we're never going to have a singer. It's <laughs> going to be all instrumental. We're going to make it all up and we're going to sign two major label deals. That wasn't <laughs> in our plans, right? It was just like, yeah, we need a name for the album. Yeah, it sounds great. The new deal, perfect. Like, it, we didn't... I'm sure the Umphreys McGee guys might say the same thing. I don't think they thought that this was going to take... This, that name was going to take right. them as far as it did. But with the new deal, it was, okay, yeah, that works fine. Just put it on the record we'll figure it out later <laughs> that's how that name came about because we had zero expectation that we would be doing that i would be talking about this 20 years later i never thought right. i thought it was cool but everything kind of had to unfold organically and naturally for this to happen you could not have said this is my plan for a band like what are you going to what what am i going to tell my other two bandmates guys i've got a great idea for a band instrumental improvisational 40 minute songs what do you think and what they're going to go, yeah, great idea. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. You just, just sort of have to live it and see how it unfolds. And so it did. And so we didn't give much thought to the name at the time. And here we are, the new deal, a million years later. Right. So another great segue, Mike Cook was wondering, was it always your intention to be an instrumental band, like after, after the beginning there? And what are some pros and cons of that, in your opinion? Well, was it our intention? No. I mean, we're open to, I mean, we do have some songs that have vocals on them. Those are more of a guest performer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, is it our intention? No. But is it easier? Uh, infinitely easier, especially when you're part of an improvisational act. Having a singer very much, especially if it means generally speaking, you're writing songs because you're going to have vocal lines and melodies and verses and choruses and everything else. And that's great, but doesn't lend itself particularly well to improvising. I mean, you could have, I mean, it works for fish and they've got vocals and then they do a bunch of jamming in the middle, but we had, you know, it was more of a jazz thing, a jazz ethic with us. None of us are big jazzers, but I liked the, the sort of, the the approach to music when it's instrumental it really allows the freedom of not having to worry about uh, another part and we didn't you know i sing in the moves and so i can sing but i don't want to sing in the (laughs) new deal 
And we didn't want a fourth person. Like we all came, Darren and I came from really, really big bands. Like we came from, I came from a seven piece band called One Step Beyond. And Darren came from a seven or eight piece band called Gypsy Soul. It's really hard touring with seven people at that level. I it bet, was, yeah. you know, it, it's just the costs and the scheduling and the prioritizing is very, very difficult. So we, especially early on, we really got off on the compact nature in which we traveled. For the first two years, I don't think we traveled with the sound guy. I mean, definitely not in the first year and a half of the band, or the first year of the band. And Kevin, our front of house guy, who's been our front of house guy from the very beginning, he was the house sound guy. He just happened to be working at that our very first gig that became This Is Live. And <laughs> he became our soundman because we were so happy with how that album turned out. And that was him mixing it on the spot. But we right. didn't have enough money and we couldn't find him for the first year. So we just traveled, the three of us, with our gear in a minivan, the end. And it was great because there were just three of us. We could right. come and go as we pleased. We could book shows. We could you know, get there in one car. That was awesome. Adding a fourth person, even just the economics of it, but adding a fourth person would have cha dramatically changed the dynamic, and I'm not 100% sure for the better. So yeah. answer to the question, do we, would we consider having lyrics? Yes, as a guest performer, as a one-off, sure, why not? But as I mentioned earlier, right now my mandate is to really maximize the intensity of the group dy dynamic that we have right now improvising music in front of the three of us in front of each other on stage and so that doesn't lend itself to vocals that much
Stuart Coker Jr. was wondering, do you ever plan on giving old tour staples like Octobong studio treatment? Good question. Well, if we were to make another studio album, then that would be on the list because that falls into the sort of category of what I was getting at earlier, which is taking ideas from, uh, from live shows and mm-hmm. trying to make songs out of them. Now, we have a number of songs, uh, many of which we've now brought to life again for this uh, coming tour. Songs like Juno or uh, Genome uh mm-hmm. that aren't on actual studio albums and we're going to be playing a lot of those as we progress through the rest of 2019 would could they make it on a studio record absolutely that's really we pick them based on what we think we can honor best the song if we if we've got ideas that we feel would be best for doing that no problem happy to do it but there's something cool about keeping those songs as not recorded they're just yeah. sort of live, you know? So I, I'm not sure. It's not a no, that's for sure. It's, right. it's, a, it's, it's a could be. <laughs> we, you know, there's nothing that's stopping us from doing it. And, but again, we like, the, we like the sort of idea. It's like, well, these songs exist just on their own, never on a record. They're like live songs. Could, could that change? Yep, it could. If, if it's something that we want to approach. But for now, I like the idea that they sort of remain in their own niche, you know? It's like their own thing. Yeah. It's, like being, it's like being a starting pitcher. It's what you do, and you, nobody else can really do it, and you're mm-hmm. kind of weird, and you can't hit, <laughs> but that's okay, because your job is really, really important. And so these songs like that, it's, to me, it's an important thing to be songs that are not on an album. So you, can't, you can go listen to live versions of them, sure, but you can't go and listen to a studio version of it whenever you want. Awkward right. long being one of them, for sure. Cool, yeah. Where do you get your song titles from? Uh, good question. Um, yeah, <laughs> on the Phoenix album, which we just put down, those <laughs> song titles are based on uh constellations and star formations we pick our jam titles if you go to nugs and you or you look at any jam because we title the jam so that people can go back to them and listen to Mm -hmm. them if they like them right those are based on every i think they're because you know there are hundreds of colors in the color spectrum and mm-hmm. so we've been naming alphabetically starting at the very first color that's in the letter A and going through all the colors for those jams. Before that, I think we did Hurricanes. Uh, <laughs> and for actual song titles that we have, uh, it's always a committee. Anybody who's got a name, you know, they, we'll take it if it sounds good. Easy Lazy on Mercury Switch, which is a song that we'll also be playing now, which I happen to, is one of my favorite later New Deal songs. Nice. Um, is a phrase that a Jamaican friend of mine would use to describe somebody who didn't do much. It was just talking about a friend of his who didn't do much in life and was totally fine with it. He said, oh man, that guy is easy lazy. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> said, oh, it means you're, you're good with anything that happens in life and you have no plans to do anything. I'm like, I like that phrase, man. Easy, lazy. Interesting. You know, we pick them up wherever we can. And it's just, they just sort of pop up at the time. And if it sounds like it meets, because it's instrumental, you don't have the easy answer of taking something from the lyric. 
right? Right, exactly. So, and that's how you can name your songs. So we named them based on just stuff that we were feeling at the time. Like there's a song called Sub Sky, and I don't even remember how we got that title, but it was very much what we were feeling when we listened to that song. Sub Sky is another example. I mean, that's on a record somewhere. We put that on vinyl, but that's not on a real actual release, nor is, I don't think, Moonscraper. There are studio versions of that, but I don't think right. they were never on an official album. Um, Moonscraper being another song that we're going to play. I mean, there's so many old songs that we used to do that we stopped doing because we only play one or two songs a set because of all the jamming. So right. a lot of these songs sort of fall by the wayside and then you never remember them and then you never get around to playing them. Uh, that has going to change a little bit. We're not going to play more songs in the set. We'll be just as much jamming, if not more. But we'll have more options to choose from. I mean, we've got like 60 songs and we ended up only playing like 15 of them for a while because they were easy and good vehicles for jamming. Well, now we've got more back up to 30 or whatever we are. And yeah. so, and as more songs are created, like the ones for all the albums and stuff, I mean, for the album, the recent jamming album stuff, it's all, uh, that, that'll be constellations until we get tired of that and then we'll pick something else. I wanted to pick CIA, covert CIA <laughs> operations, but I got voted down because those were too negative and too intense. So I said, okay, fine. Uh, maybe in the future. Yeah, maybe for my solo project. You know, I, <laughs> I can name all the CIA covert operations, but everybody preferred to have something a little more positive sounding. <laughs> <laughs> so I also read that you're a gear collector. What... Uh... What's your favorite I am, piece? Of I'm, a, I'm a gear collector, but recently I've been a gear divester. I, I've been trying to, I have a studio in, you know, I take up most of the basement of my house and it's this big studio I use for TV. And so I've got a lot of keyboards in there. But for the longest time, I could, I had a bunch of keyboards sitting in storage. I'm like, man, if I don't have room in my studio right now for all my keyboards, I'm never going to have room because I have an awesome big studio. And if right. I don't have room for them now, I never will. So I decided to start getting rid of a lot of them some of them i would give um like not super special keyboards those i try and keep but some of the ones i had like various organs and stuff like that i gave to younger music guys that i know because and some people that i mentor or try and help with or people that get in touch with me uh i can't afford a cool old keyboard and i always knew that when i was like 17 or 18 i sure wished i had a guy in my life that was, you know, relatively successful at music that would offer to help me on my way by giving me a little keyboard. And it's, you know, we're talking like $200, $300 old keyboards, nothing crazy, but right. stuff they couldn't afford, that stuff that they could really put to good use. You know? So I do some of that with some of the little stuff. Some of the bigger stuff I keep in my studio, but I try and I don't have any keyboards in storage anymore. I just couldn't do it. I brought everything into my studio as much as I could. And there's a bunch of keyboards there and anything that didn't fit had to go less stressful that way really it is less stressful they're just sitting rotting away in a storage space like the wires are corroding and exactly. well, what's the point man like let somebody enjoy it if i have it in my studio it's because it's a, a cool it's a keyboard i use it's a keyboard i enjoy playing now and then or it's a keyboard i enjoy looking at or it's a rare keyboard that i couldn't find anywhere else and so i'm not going to sell it everything else that could be available on the internet that isn't in my studio i got rid of right so like what's your what's your favorite piece of gear like is there one that you can't live without oh well uh yeah i mean my my new deal gear i can't live without and that <laughs> is basically my musical personality those all those keyboards that are there right they all serve a different purpose but they all are an important part of my musical identity without a doubt 
I don't play a single one of them when I'm in the studio doing other stuff. Those sit in the New Deal studio or in the New Deal storage in road cases ready to go. I have right. doubles and spares of some of them. But the keyboards I have it in my studio and at home, I mean, I had for a while I had an Optigan, which is a crazy optical disc keyboard from the 70s that created its sounds and it was like had loops on this flexi disc and you would put this disc in and you could play buttons and chords and it would create all these cool sounds and rhythms and stuff and i had that for a very long time and i used it and then i sampled it all and i put it on my computer because it was falling it was it was breaking it was made by mattel or something but it was a huge <laughs> device it looked like a it looked like a like a dresser drawer it was like that big uh, and it kept breaking. I'm like, man, I keep getting this fixed and I keep fixing it and something else keeps breaking and I just don't have the, the time for it anymore. So I managed to get what I needed out of it and then I got rid of it. But I mean, I've got like electric pianos and Farfisa organs and Wurlitzers and clavinets and mi uh, mini Moog. The coolest synthesizer I have would be this giant modular Moog synthesizer from 1968, all with these giant patch cords and these big dials. And it was a three suitcase <laughs> model full of modules and a ribbon controller and a keyboard. And I got it for, I think it was $60 at a yard sale. This guy was, his wife was making him get rid of it. And so I bought it for 60 bucks plus all these crazy cool Lucite patch cables that came with it. It's just straight from the sixties. Awesome. It was, and it's great. And I had to get it repaired. And the guy that I used to get my keyboards repaired by, he also builds pedals for people like the edge from U two. And he just does a lot of like custom nice. work. He lost his mind when he saw this thing. And so he, <laughs> he made a deal with me because it was going to cost a lot of money to get this thing back into shape because it's got crazy it's modules. It's going to take so much time hmm. that he took all the best parts, put them into a single cabinet for me, uh, repaired and cleaned everything, took the secondary modules, which I would have no need for, and did it all for free and gave me a mini Moog in exchange for the secondary modules that he took and repaired and did whatever he did with it didn't matter to me. So that <laughs> keyboard is probably my, my coolest and favorite keyboard, but I only play it, you know, 15 times a year because I don't have much use for a modular Moog in the music right. I'm writing for. If I was writing for stranger things or something like that, then I might, but I'm not. So I don't, <laughs> I don't have use for that too much, but I got, you know, there's Mellotron in there and, there's a, a portable organ and a couple Leslie's and a bunch of weird little circuit bent. Marco Benevento had turned me on to the circuit bent keyboards a while back. And so I became a big fan of those. So I got a bunch of circuit bent keyboards in my, my studio as well that I like to use. It's all pretty crazy stuff. I used some of it on the last new deal on the Mercury switch record. Nice. Uh, so that stuff gets used when the new deal is recording in the studio. I mean, that stuff we did, some of those tunes we wrote in the studio, a couple of them. But a couple of them were taken from live shows as well. Whatever works in the moment is usually how we'll approach it. So, okay, I think this is the last one. Uh, and this is, I was wondering this myself, and you just mentioned Stranger Things. What TV shows or movies have you worked on? Um, there's a lot. I mean, there's, there's good and there's bad. <laughs> you know, I have to talk about one of my favorites that I did in the past couple of years. Uh, sure, I, should, sure. I should look it up. Hold on. Because I want to get the title right. I never need to know the title. Uh, hold on. Sky. I think it's called Skyjacker, which was a crazy story. This, yeah, it's called The Skyjacker's Tale. 
And this was a movie that was in wide release. It's a very cool story. And it was a true story based on this dude who was from the Virgin Islands. And he, so that's sort of like an American, you know, it's, they're part of the United States. He got busted in the seventies on a triple murder that he claims he didn't commit and was fighting. He was in jail in Illinois for it because you could go back. You could, they could take you to a prison in the States because Virgin Islands are the States. And he was appealing or challenging something. This is all true. And he hijacked the plane that there was that was taking him to his appeal. And he flew it. This is an 83. And he flew it down to Cuba. And he's been living in Cuba ever since. Free. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and this director with whom we've worked a lot was the only guy in his entire history that he agreed to be interviewed by. Wow. So he interviewed him forever. And this whole movie is a recreation of him hijacking the plane of him taking of the crime that he didn't commit or did commit or whatever. And then him going to jail and then him hijacking the plane and flying it to Cuba and getting out in Cuba and living his life in Cuba ever since. That's awesome. It's amazing. So that's one of the better things I've done recently, but I've done a bunch of episodes of the nature of things, which is a show on CBC here in Canada. Cool. They know it. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so various things like that. I mean, it's, I try and make, I try and pick the stuff that's interesting to me because it's, uh, if I'm going to spend 12 hours a day in the studio for three weeks in a row, I better want to enjoy the stuff I'm doing. I did a pretty cool multi, multi episode series for, uh, I think it was the discovery channel on the 70 days, 97, 40th anniversary of the son of Sam's son of sam murders which i guess would have happened a year and a half ago two years ago and hmm. that music was pretty great too they basically gave us carte blanche they're like do what you want to do make it sound like whatever you want to make it sound like so i made it sound like Giorgio Moroder, which was very yes. cool and that was made for a very interesting thing too so in the past couple of years those have been the two of the more interesting things i've been writing that's awesome yeah perfect well uh with the new uh new album phoenix it's yep. out now just a surprise album yep there'll be lots of them yeah, volume one of the Asylum Sessions. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll uh, hopefully see you on tour with maybe Humphreys McGee this, this coming year. Maybe. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> right awesome. On. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.